It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This edition of How to Be a CEO is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharmadine Reed, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year, thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. ES Audio. Right, get your pens ready, here's a history lesson and we will be asking questions later. The first proper book known to have been written was The Epic of Gilgamesh, a poetic biography of a Sumerian king. The oldest known copy was made around 2000 BC. The printing press was invented in 1436. The first publishing house was the Cambridge University Press, founded by Henry VIII in 1534. And you know what? The practice of publishing has barely changed since then. In the realms of how to be a CEO, there is an art to coming in and looking at something that already exists and how far do you balance, okay, what have we got now versus where do we want to be in the future? Will Harris is the CEO of Unbound, a digital publishing house with the intention of disrupting one of our oldest industries. Of course, nobody wants to be disrupted, right? So um, you, you sort of have to do it with a, with a, with a friendly face. I'm David Marlson from the Evening Standard. Publishing may be old, but it's following principles that have been around for centuries and has been doing just fine. So when we meet Will, I want to know why does publishing need disrupted? <laughs> so, um, first of all, thanks uh, for having me, David. It's a great question. Publishing has been around for obviously a very long time and arguably hasn't changed that much at all from hundreds of years ago. In fact, I was just reading a book all about marketing books in the Middle Ages uh, and the very first books coming off the Lutherian printer presses. And I was sort of thinking, gosh, this, this sounds awfully familiar, actually. I think like everything, publishing is an industry that's going through an element of digital disruption. You know, I've seen it in former lives that I've had in the television world. I've seen it in the magazine and newspaper world. And books have been quite resilient to it in that they've really undergone not much of a change apart from the fact that we can now buy books digitally and read them on Kindles or on iPads. You can argue that the biggest disruption in publishing really in the last 20 years is the audiobook, right? That audible model of buying a subscription to, to just get a book rather than sort of buying an individual book. That's quite disruptive. But I think there are a number of reasons that publishing is, is ripe for disruption now. I mean, one is that we are spending so much of our time online that it makes sense to have a sort of closer relationship between our online lives and our offline lives. And books are about as offline as it gets, really. I think the second thing is that I think we're all recognizing in today's world a greater need for diversity. You know, publishing is still a 
you know, particularly over here, it's a pretty white, it's a pretty middle class industry. It's a world where we could be doing a lot better to elevate a lot of different voices. You know, the, the Sunday Times bestseller list is, is often dominated by the same few names. It's also an industry where um, you're seeing a lot of consolidation. The big publishers are sort of, you know, merging together. Amazon obviously has become such a, a huge force in our lives, not just for books, but for everything else. And I think anytime you have all those forces coming together, there's an opportunity to do something new and different and a little bit revolutionary. And, and that's why we like to think Unbound exists. There's a couple of things there that you talked about that I would consider to be quite difficult. The first is the traditional world of publishing. How do you disrupt something which may not want to be disrupted? And then the second there is, of course, that, that Amazon feature, which so dominates everything. How do you work alongside something like that in that environment? Of course, nobody wants to be disrupted, right? So um, you you sort of have to do it with a with a with a friendly face. And I mean, I think that goes back to you know kind of the way that Unbound works as a as a platform as a company. So in many ways, we are a traditional publishing company, right? We have all the the things that you'd expect a publishing company to have. But what we do that's different is that when it comes to commissioning a book, if somebody internally has got an idea for a book, if we've you know had an author approach us and say they would like to write something, if we've thought of something that we would like to see happen in the marketplace that actually we need to go and find an author or find a community, that's actually where we bring in the disruption. You know, I always liken the traditional model to being a bit like spread betting. Right, I'm going to take 10 horses and I'm going to bet, you know, 20 quid on each of them and, you know, nine of them won't win, but one of them will be such an outsider that it will return enough to pay for all the rest of them combined, right? The way that we work is that when we decided to commission a book and we're working with an author and we've got a title and we've got, you know, the idea and how it's going to work, we then take that out to our digital platform and let the crowd decide if it should be funded and if we should publish it. So it's kind of a little bit of a Kickstarter model. We put it up and say, if this book was going to be published this year, would you buy it? And that does a few things that really are very subtle. And that doesn't sound like a massive disruption, but it actually enables you to do quite a few things. It obviously financially de-risks what you're doing. So rather than making a bunch of bets that you're pretty sure are going to fail, every book is at least going to wash its own face. So you've got a great opportunity there. The second thing is you can see where those audiences are, where those readers are, where they gather. And you can actually try and drum up even more enthusiasm for a book than you would normally have. So, you know, we publish books that appeal to the, you know, people who are interested in video games, for example, and we can go and talk directly to those gaming communities and say, look, this is a book that we're making for you guys. Come and get involved. And the ways that they can get involved then also leans into some of the unique disruption that we do. So most publishers will sell you a book and a book is great, but there are lots of people that would like more than a book. So in that sort of very Kickstarter-y way, we allow people to pledge for different sort of levels of engagement with the book. So you can just buy a copy of the book, maybe for a tenner, but for 20 quid, maybe you can buy a signed copy of the book. Or for 50 pounds, maybe you can buy a limited edition illustrated sort of art book that goes with the book. All the way through to we've had authors who will um, put on lunches for people, all the way through to my absolute favorite at the moment, which is we're publishing a book with a fantastic woman who is a former Jehovah's Witness turned BDSM model, and <laughs> which is quite a story. And for a thousand pounds, she will record you 
a video, a custom video to go with your book. And it's like, so you're giving people the chance not just to buy a book, but to really buy an experience that goes around the book and really to be part of it. So that's sort of an interesting sort of secondary disruption. But the third one actually really relates to, you know, the point about our fantastic Jehovah's Witness BDSM model. She's a first time author Mm. and as such is a pretty unknown quantity. So if you're a traditional publishing house, that's quite a big risk to take. Whereas we were able to say, okay, well, we know you have a certain, you know, online community or a social media community. We know we can make this work. And actually the model of crowdfunding these books means that we can take much more riskier and much more diverse bets than you would otherwise be able to take in the publishing industry. So we're able to do things like we have an entire imprint of books called Unbound Firsts, which Mm -hmm. is just dedicated to publishing the debut novels of underrepresented writers. And that's something that we're really proud of. It's something that you can do when you've got a disruptive business model. Via the disruptive business model, we're able to give those people voices and actually, that that makes the whole world of publishing a better place, I think. Interesting that you're kind of heading into niche communities and marketing within those, because I think that's, I may be wrong here, but is that bringing in people who might not ordinarily consider books or buy books? You're going, look, we're doing this thing that works with inside your community and the interests you have. Is that bringing new readers in? So the short answer is yes, it is. Our average reader is is younger than the average age by, of, a, of a book purchaser quite significantly. You're right. The internet was built for niche communities, right? It's where, you know, everybody assembles, whether they're assembling on social media, whether they're assembling on subreddits. And sort of by its nature, publishing is designed to be broad. You want a bestseller. It's like, well, you've got, then you've got to appeal to as many people as possible. And if you're only appealing to a small community, ah, how do I really measure the size of that community? How do I know they're really going to be engaged? Well, guess what? If you get them in at the very beginning of the process, as we do, you can make sure they're engaged. And not only can you, you know, tailor something to them, but you can find out where more of them are and actually build a business. And you'd be surprised how many niches are really not that niche. I mean, to take a, to take a complete, you know, parallel from a different world, it's only 15 years ago that the idea of making a movie about Iron Man, you know, one of the lesser sort of known, sort of very geeky comic book characters, that was considered quite a speculative bet in Hollywood, right? And look how niche that community of people turned out to be, right? So there are, niches can always be bigger than you think they are. And I think, although we do publish in niches, we do have a few books that appeal to these kind of very broad, but specific interest groups. So next year we have a, um, a book which is called 42, which is a compendium of all the unpublished writings of Douglas Adams, who obviously wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, taken from us far too soon, sadly, but who left an office that was sort of an Aladdin's cave of six by four you know, notes and half written emails and half outline stories. You know, you can say that sort of sci-fi fans or, you know, hitchhikers fans are a niche, but they're a pretty big niche and you can make a good living, you know, being nice to them. And I guess this would be true for any new publisher, but how do you attract those authors? You know, people like 
you're working on this Douglas Adams book. That's a big name. He, he, he's now late, of course, but it's a big name you have. <laughs> You've got, you know, Jim Watt, Vic Reeves. He's a big, big name. How do you attract people in there? Because there is risk. This is a new model. It's perhaps unproven. Why should I publish my book through you when I've got one of the big five publishers interested in buying this? So I think one thing is that we offer you a much more, as you know, to, as an author, we offer you a much closer relationship to your community. If you're writing for a traditional publishing house, your relationship is with your editor of that publishing house. And then the person at the publishing house has a relationship with Amazon, and then Amazon has a relationship with your reader. Whereas with the Unbound model, okay, if this book happens, somebody that you want to be your reader has got to pay for it to fund it. And so you've immediately got that relationship. We allow authors to publish updates to the people who have pre-ordered or pledged for the book. They get access to be able to send the messages. We will be, without pre-announcing anything, allowing authors to build communities on the Unbound platform over the coming months that allow them to directly communicate with their readers. And that's a really important thing for an author to kind of, I don't want to say own because nobody owns somebody else, but to own their own audience and not have that data be trapped in another platform like Amazon. So I think that's number one. Number two is that because we've built this model that substantially de-risks the initial publishing run, it means that we can give authors much better commercial terms than they would otherwise get on, you know, at some of the traditional publishers. If Unbound exists for a reason, it exists to connect audiences and authors. But also it exists because authors don't necessarily get a very fair shake from uh, your traditional publishers. I mean, if you are JK Rowling and you've published Harry Potter, then of course you're making absolutely gazillions and you're set. But there are lots of authors who will publish things that will never make back their advances and will never see a sort of penny out of royalties down the road. And we have a, a different model of paying out royalties that sort of reflects a much more equitable, we think, split of kind of, of money really going between us and going between the author. And that in turn allows the author to have a more sustainable life. It allows us to not just recruit authors that are already financially secure and so probably come from a particular demographic. It means we can diversify our author base it means we can bring diversity to the people that are creating books that might not have created them before. And it means that when they do create a book, they're getting a better return out of it. So they'll come back and work with us again. Are you working differently with different kind of tiers of, of authors, your first time authors, your debut authors? Are they getting off of the same kinds of deals as some of, uh, of a bigger name? How are you treating new authors and, 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 and more traditional authors uh, differently? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's it's a fair question. And the way that it's traditionally dealt with in, in publishing is you sort of fundamentally have the same percentage of royalties paid out, but you might be given a bigger advance. And so what we're really trying to do is come up with contracts. And of course, we've got different contracts for not just, I don't want to say tiers of authors, but of course, for different sectors, because different sectors perform differently. So what we want to try and always do is have for any given sector, whether it's a cookbook sector or whether it's a, a video games book, or you know, we want to try and have a, what we think is a fairer contract than any other competing publisher would give, along with all the advantages of, of you know, we discussed about, you know, access to an audience and, you know, and that direct community aspect.
Let's take a break. Why not grab a coffee and read a short story? Oh, and hit your follow button so you never miss an episode of How to Be a CEO. We'll be back after these. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Let's talk about Unbound itself, because this is a publisher it's not a self-publisher you've talked about the staff that you have the commissioners and you release actual books as well don't you it's not just for e-readers yeah absolutely and i mean it's it's a slight misnomer to describe us as a a digital publisher because we we do publish things physically we just happen to operate a, a very very neat and very unique digital platform you know the great thing about disruption to an industry is that it doesn't always have to be subtractive you know you can add things on so yes we have this crowdfunding element and yes we do these these really cool digital editions but you can also buy books direct from our website you can physically go into waterstones if you're in the states you can go into barnes and noble and physically pick up very beautifully created our production team works very hard to make sure that the uh, the books that we create are are fantastic whether they're black and white you know novels or whether they're full-size color coffee table books they are um, yeah beautiful physical things in publishing itself, your own background isn't entirely within the publishing industry or the book publishing industry. How has that industry reacted to your arrival, I guess? Has it been welcoming for you? <laughs> yeah, so I've had um, uh, you know, a career that's always been digital combined with something media. So um, I started off building one of the UK's first uh, YouTube production companies. So this was kind of like digital, but with a little side of television. And I ran the digital operation at Condé Nast, which obviously publishes Vogue and GQ. And so that was digital with sort of magazines. And then I actually had a podcast company um, called Entail, and that was digital with a side of radio. So I feel like I'm I'm sort of progressively getting more old fashioned. I've gone from sort of YouTube to magazines to radio and now to books. So I'm kind of going, I'm kind of going backwards in, in length of time. But I think everybody, you know, in this industry recognizes that disruption is needed, that there is opportunities that aren't being capitalized on. And I think everybody recognizes that the status quo isn't necessarily going to be the best way to take advantage of that. I like to think that because I've worked across a variety of industries now that have all had this kind of substantial level of digital disruption, I can work with people to sort of work alongside them. You know, the, the typical picture of somebody who comes in from the digital industry you know, it's the sort of Silicon Valley tech bro who comes in with a hoodie and his high tops and is like, you're all rubbish. You're doing it all wrong. You're all outdated. You're all fossils. Sod off. We're going to do everything completely new from now on because you you might be doing it for 20 years, but you don't know nothing about what's going on now, right? Not a very helpful approach. 
And what I found over the years is that whether you're working in digital, in television or in radio or in magazines or indeed in books, showing people the advantages of what you can get out of digital and the advantages of this disruption, as opposed to just the sort of negatives that they will nevertheless experience, is actually a great way of getting people on board and bringing them along with you on this transformative journey. You know, you can say, okay, we're going to disrupt book publishing, but look what you get out of this. You've got all this incredible data about what people want to inform your commissioning decisions, or look what else you can get. You can, you know, by having a direct to consumer relationship, maybe by launching a subscription model, you can get incredible marketing data that you never would have had before. You would have been relying on, you know, your sort of Amazon stats or um, the sort of slightly wonky stats of tube adverts for books and, you know, that kind of thing. It's about showing people that there are advantages and blessings to disruption, not just inconveniences and annoyances. But if you're showing them success, Will, and the industry's looking at this, isn't there a, a risk that right now you're running more or less competitive-free, but you know some big major company like Hachette or something could go, do you know what, why don't we just do it ourselves? And then is there is there a risk of increased competition here? And how do you stay ahead of that? Well, I mean, A, that's the risk of, of running any disruptive business, right? Is that you have a bigger player that decides they want to do the same thing that you're doing. In fact, in any industry, that's the case. But the, the example I would specifically give in digital is, you know, Facebook has got a, a social network and it turns out that people really want to do photos rather than text. And it's like, well, Facebook, of course, could do its own thing, but it's way cheaper to, way easier to just acquire Instagram, you know, drop a couple of billion and you're onto that. And it's like, well, Facebook has built a messaging app, but it turns out uh, Facebook isn't really built to build messaging apps. So actually let's just buy WhatsApp because that's just a lot easier than doing it that way. So not to say that, you know, we're only building something because it's, it's there to be acquired in the future, but just to say that just because a big publisher or a big company can throw money at a problem, doesn't mean they can solve it. You know, the key things that smaller companies that startups have, and it's, you know, as a CEO, you've got to recognize your strengths and weaknesses. Our weaknesses that we don't have the cash to deploy that a bigger company does, but our strength is greater focus, greater mission, better people, better determination, a clear goal. And also we're not trying to internally compete. You know, I've seen what it's like when you work in big companies and the digital division is competing against a more traditional division, you know, the internal competition can be more divisive and more destructive than the external competition. There's a saying in, you know, when you're doing a startup that an idea is worth precisely diddly squat. It's all about, you know, there's a reason that you can't patent an idea, right? You literally can't legally patent an idea. You can only patent the execution of an idea. And it's all very well for a big publisher to say, hey, that's a good idea, we're gonna copy that. Doing it's a lot harder. <laughs> How do you uh, evolve, though? I mean, you've only been in position a few months as, as we're doing this recording now. When you started, was it, would you focus on, right, what are we going to be doing right now? Or is your focus on where do we go in one, two, three years' time? So that's a great question because, you know, in the, in the realms of how to be a CEO, there is an art to coming in and looking at something that already exists when you're a CEO that's been brought in, right? And how far do you balance, okay, what have we got now versus where do we want to be in the future? I've done this a couple of times now, and there's a process that you kind of go through of, okay, what are the bits in this business that are really working? If you had to just leave everything else and just focus on a core, what would you do? 
And you want that element and you want that element to be running like just in absolute tip top condition. So kind of job one is, you know, what's at the core of what we've already got and how do we get that running the most efficiently that we possibly can? And for us, that was, look, we've got a great high quality book publishing operation that's got this unique flywheel that drives it with the consumer interaction. If we had to make sure that over the next six months to a year, we come out of that with that in the best position possible, then we have to focus on, you know, that's job number one. But job number two is, where do we see this in three years? You know, with with the state of the world right now, the horizon could be a mushroom cloud in five years. So I'm just, just not worried about that far ahead. But I think you've got to look at a three year time horizon and say, what would the best version of this business look like in three years? And so what are the things that I need to do right now? And then in six months, 12 months, 18 months, et cetera, how do I work backwards from where I want to be in three years, where I think I could be in three years? How do I work that back to actions that I need to take on day one when I come into the business? How do I put into process, you know, by day 30, you know, the classic 30, 60, 90 plan for delivering anything new. And maybe I don't know the answer to what that three-year looks like. Maybe there are two or three possible answers. So how do I start putting irons in fires now so that you can see which ones get hottest over the next six months and make that decision in six months' time? It's how do we shore up the thing that's really core to us right now? And then how do we give ourselves the most optionality to be where we think we want to be in three years' time? What have you got reading on your, your bedside table right now, Will? And, and make sure it's one of your own. Make sure it's one of your own. It is. I am currently reading. I find very therapeutic. I have a great book that we've just published called Birds by Jim Mower, who is um, the, the comedian known as Vic Reeves. And he's a fantastic watercolor painter. And he's drawn um, a whole bunch of the um, uh, sort of indigenous British bird species and um, there's a little cute little fact to go with every single one of them and it's a great little bedside book to just you know if you want if you're if you're sitting in bed and you've put your phone in the other room because you're practicing good sleep habits even though i'm a digital native and putting my phone in the other room is almost like cutting off my arm it's great to sit with and leave through with your cup of cocoa and it's a it's a very pleasant little artifact to go through so i would say birds by jim moher is good Oh, a great book called The Fantastic Four Complete Collection by James Hickman, which sadly isn't one of mine. But having, having mentioned the Marvel Universe earlier, it's the, it's the definitive run of, uh, of The Fantastic Four. And that, that's, a, that's a great little read as well. That was Will Harris from Unbound. Do you know where else you can get interviews, news and analysis? The Evening Standard newspaper or go online to standard.co.uk forward slash business how to be a ceo is back on monday morning let's meet up again then